Follow Mrs. Spence heading out there. Thanks, Gail, for stepping in. Bonnie Libby was supposed to teach this week, but her grandmother was hospitalized, so please be praying for her. She's up in New York State helping take care of her family. Also, Jeremy Hasseman's grandmother passed away this week, so they're off with family as well. They would appreciate your prayers, I'm sure. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The Apostle John is writing to us and he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. And hear it and apply it and live by it. Lord, start us this morning by helping us to understand it and do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I find it uh, somewhat amusing to listen to used car salesmen. And uh, not all of them are like what I'm about to describe. There are some that are uh, really good. Um, but I think that for uh, many of them, the word craft that they employ is remarkable and instructive. Deceptive sales craft is all about embellishing the positives and shrinking the negatives and using a, a careful sprinkling of plausible lies. You walk up to what's designed to be a mode of transportation, and the salesman immediately says to you, this baby has the finest sound system you'll ever find in a car. Sit in those seats. They're capable of over 50 different positions. And now that he's so overstated a couple of the positives, so you're not even thinking about the engine and the transmission, he sets out to shrink the negatives. He says it's a great car for driving around the city. And that actually means it's very small. It doesn't have much pickup. And then he says a perfect car for a young family, which really means that the back seat is so small no normal-sized human being could possibly sit there comfortably. And then he ends with plausible lies. We'll have no trouble making it affordable for you. Most of the time, that means uh, you really can't afford this car, but we can manipulate the finances in such a way as to make you think you can. 
And such is the craft of the enemy. It's all about embellishing positives, shrinking the negatives, and plausible lies. And it's the craft of temptation. It's the craft of pseudo-glory and false transcendence. It's a wicked craft, and it gets us again and again and again. See, the enemy of our souls knows that we were created for transcendence. According to the American Heritage Dictionary, transcendence literally means lying beyond the ordinary range of perception. It's something above and beyond us. And our enemy knows that we are created to be constantly connected to something more glorious, excuse me, more glorious than the small glories of our own survival and pleasure. He knows that we all hunger for more. So his craft is to present us with less in a way that makes it appear to be more. Think about that. Presented with less in a way that makes it appear to be more. And apparently, in today's passage, the Apostle John has something to say about that. And we're going to see what that is, but before we do, we're going to review again what this book is about. This is the fifth sermon in the series on the epistles, the letters of John, and I want to, again, point out a few key things we need to learn from John. We must know why the church is a community, and then be a community, we must know why Christians are loving and then be loving people. And we must know why Christianity is believable and then act like we really do believe it. And we must know why Jesus uh, is the one who lives and reigns and is coming again and be able to tell others in a way that they can understand. Unlike the Gospel of John, the epistles, the letters of John were written to the church. John was based in Ephesus it's most likely this letter was written to the churches in Asia Minor, just as the uh, book of Revelation was. And John's purpose for readers of this epistle was they might know that they already have life. It was written for believers to deepen their assurance of faith. And they contain tests by which to judge that faith. And the enemies of the truth in the, this epistle are professing Christians, although the tests given here show that they're lying, and whose theology of Jesus is distinctly docetic and Gnostic in nature. And I've gone over that a couple of times because it's so key to understanding 1 John. If you don't understand what he's addressing, you don't really get the book. Now, doceticism is an opinion that Jesus had no human body and only appeared to die on the cross. They don't deny the divinity of Christ, but they deny the humanity of Jesus. They said he just acted like a man, but he wasn't really a man. And Gnosticism is a belief of early Christian cults that valued special revealed knowledge of God, that they had gotten this special knowledge as a means to attain redemption for the spiritual element uh, in man, and it was separated from the physical element. So the body was bad, and whatever you did with it didn't really matter, and, but the spirit was good. And so John is trying to expose these 
mere professors of faith in Christ, actually non-believers, and to confirm the true possessors of Christ by faith, who are the real believers. And he does it by means of the application of certain tests of life in hopes that he will grant assurance uh, of eternal life to those who are true Christians. That's the purpose of the book, 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. However, the problem is people can't tell who's who. They don't know who these false professors are from those who really did possess Christ. And they had these false teachers, and they claimed to believe in Jesus, but they refused to live like it. And so you have all these young Christians uh, in the church, and they're confused. And false teaching always leads to false living. And the ethical implications of Gnosticism are John's concern uh, throughout these letters. And there's two problems. There's a lack of obedience to the commands of Christ that borders on outright decadence. If the body doesn't matter, then you can do anything with it. That includes sin. You can do all sorts of sinful stuff, but since it doesn't matter, we're still good. And uh, then they have this absence of brotherly love and compassion because that only applied to those of us that got the special revealed knowledge, not to the rest of you too bad, so sad. Try again later. And so we opened John in uh, chapter 1, and uh, we saw John's responding to this false teaching about sin. They're teaching all this incorrect stuff that you can have a relationship with God and still live immorally. And they're teaching that once you become a Christian, uh, you're a person who is without sin. And in fact, you no longer actually commit sin, even though it really looks like you're committing sin and you're living immorally. But again, if you got the special knowledge, it doesn't count. It's very handy um, to say that you're in the kingdom of God, but then you can live any way you want and do anything you want. And it doesn't count for me. It counts for you, um, but not for me because I got the special deal. And um, so John is responding to this false teaching. And you can imagine how people were confused by this. And he makes it clear that even though we're new creations in Christ, we're still sinners. We have to deal with that sin realistically and biblically. And he tells us about confessing our sins and seeking the forgiveness of God. And even though we've been saved by grace and forgiven of our sins and spared of their penalty, as believers, we still need to continue to grow in grace by confessing our sins, having them forgiven. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, so a few weeks ago, he says, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I know that uh, as Christians we still struggle with sin and we still need to continue to confess and repent. I'm not saying that sin isn't a big deal. I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue godliness. I'm not saying we shouldn't be active in the pursuit of holiness. He makes it clear his goal is precisely that we would pursue godliness and holiness. And he explains the basis of that, of godliness and righteousness, is found in Jesus Christ. He says he's the advocate who is the propitiation for our sins. That just means that Jesus, through his death on the cross for our sins, satisfies God's wrath against our sins. And so that's the background. That's what he's addressing. He has this really big problem of these false teachers and he has a church that's pretty much full 
of young Christians. There are a few elders here and there. There's some folks that are doing uh, pretty well and growing, but he has to deal with this problem. So let's look at our text for today, verses 12 through 14, and the foundation for assurance, the foundation. This is uh, quite repetitive. You have to listen carefully. It says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides you and you have overcome the evil one. The first thing you notice here is he repeats himself uh, three times, uh, or, or, you know, with children and fathers and young men. He repeats himself about them and uh, he's addressing these three groups. Now, we already know that the phrase children or little children throughout all of John's writings simply refers to everyone in the congregation and uh, it's referring to all Christians. And we certainly can uh, take these to mean actual children, but it's much more likely he's using this as a metaphor to refer to new Christians, to young Christians, to those who are spiritually immature. That's how he uses it everywhere else uh, in his writings. And he also uses the term father several times. He refers to those who are, in some degree, the opposite of the children. These are people who are spiritually mature and biblically wise. And again, that certainly fits with the context. And now he uses the term young men. He only uses that a few times in his writing, but fitting it within the context seems he's referring to Christians who are growing and are strong in the faith, but aren't yet to what we might consider spiritually mature. And uh, as a matter of fact, this kind of usage is actually quite common in our own Presbyterian tradition. I was at General Assembly a few weeks ago. Most of the time when someone got up to speak, uh, if he's smart, he addresses the assembly as fathers and brothers. And if he doesn't do that, he's not smart. Um, but that's somewhat of the sense here. You know, he's talking to the people of the church, and he addresses them as fathers and young people and children. And he's not, it's not literally um, or literalistically talking about age. He's talking about where you are spiritually. And he has taken sort of a break in his attack against the false teachers to both affirm and exhort the people. And he wants to affirm them. He says right off the top, you've been forgiven for Christ's sake and you know the Father. He says that in verse 12, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And the end of verse 13, he says, because you know the Father. Now his words to his little children here meant for believers relatively new, relatively young in the faith. And in these two phrases, in these two verses, John teaches us three things about Christian assurance. First, Christians are forgiven. Second, Christians are forgiven for Christ's sake. And third, because of that, because they're forgiven and forgiven for Christ's sake, they know the Father. They know the Father. And he's pointing us 
to what we call the objective ground of our insurance, of our assurance. What does our assurance depend on? That's the ground of it, what it rests on. And he points to God's work of forgiveness, which is not something in us. That's important. So far, he's been talking about something that is in us in response to God's grace. He's talked about our love for one another. And our love for one another did not cause God to love us, but it was a result of God loving us. And he talked about our love for God's word, for God's commands. But our love for God's commands did not cause God to love us. It is the result of God loving us. And when he points to our life and our love as evidences of assurance, if those things alone are the basis on which I have assurance of my salvation, I'm going to struggle with that because my love fluctuates, and I'm sure yours does too. Ask any husband or wife in the room today, the quality and expression of love and even the very best of marriages changes day to day. So if my assurance of my standing with God is based upon how I love my fellow Christians, my assurance is going to radically fluctuate because my love for fellow Christians radically fluctuates. So John's pointing us away from those subjective changing evidences of God's work in our lives to something objective, something unchanging, something outside of us, something that God does. And he points to God's forgiveness. Christians are forgiven people, he says, objectively. And he points to that work of God and forgiveness as the ultimate ground for our assurance, for our salvation. It's something outside of us. Think of it this way. Forgiveness is not something you do. God does forgiveness. And he does it in justification when we're saved, when he pardons all of our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, not for anything in us, but all for the sake of the righteous Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John points to that. He says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And his point is that we're not forgiven because of something uh, that we do. We're not forgiven because we deserve it. We're not forgiven because we're some way uh, different from other people who haven't received the forgiveness of God, we're forgiven because of Christ. We're forgiven because of God's mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. In other words, the basis of our forgiveness is outside of us. And so the assurance of our forgiveness is outside of us, and it's in what God has done. So he points us to this fact, we're forgiven and then to another fact, we're forgiven because of what Christ has done. That's the basis of our salvation. And we have lots and lots of hymns that sing about the glory of that truth. Many songs, uh, the most uh, common hymn known to most people, at least in this country, uh, from John Newton, when he came to understand he was a forgiven sinner. What did he say? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. One of my favorite uh, hymns is Rock of Ages by Augustus Toplady. I particularly like James Ward's version. Maybe you know this hymn by heart. You probably should. But if you don't, the second stanza goes like this. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill 
thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin. The labor of my hands, my zeal, my tears, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. There's nothing in John Newton, there's nothing in Augustus Toplady, there's nothing in any of us that we can do in order to cause God's forgiveness of us. God's forgiveness has to be freely given to us in the just sacrifice of the Savior. And this is so important because even in the church, people attempt to justify themselves. They want to deal with their sins by uh, embellishing the positives. You know, well, I do these other things very well. Or they'll uh, want to deal with their sins by shrinking the negatives. You know, really wasn't that bad, you know. Uh, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, could have. Uh, but God is saying, no, 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 no. The beginning of the Christian life is in the forgiveness of sins, and that means God saves those who are sinners. And all those whom God saves come to know that they're sinners, and they have no hope save in Jesus Christ. And so they glory in the fact that God hasn't saved them because they're good. He saved them because of Christ. So John points us there first. It's a very important verse. He says, get that foundation. Everything else will be put in the right place. Yes, those who are forgiven will uh, manifest a love for God's word, and those who are forgiven will manifest a love for one another, but their love for God's word, their love for one another, will not create that forgiveness. Only God's mercy brings that forgiveness that's where he begins, the forgiveness of God based on Jesus. And we see how that plays out in the next two verses, 13 and 14. John's words to those he calls young men in the faith, speaking to growing but still young believers. And here's how he characterizes them. He says twice, you have overcome the evil one. In other words, they've experienced a definitive break from the bondage of Satan. Paul says much the same thing, Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We had it in the words of our responsive reading this morning that Dave led you in. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In other words, they've not only been forgiven They've not only had the penalty of sin broken in their life, that's what he talked about in verse 12, but they've had the power of sin broken as well. And John speaks of Christians as having overcome the evil one. Now, I read that, and I think most of us don't feel like we've actually overcome the evil one 24-7. And so this sounds kind of strange. We say, look, there's this sin that just seems to have gotten a hold of me what the Puritans called besetting sins, the ones that you have to confess over and over and over and over again, and then you still do them. You know, and people might say, hey, I've been praying against and fighting against this, these besetting sins, you know, for uh, 28 years, and I'm still fighting against them. I don't 
feel like I'm having dominion over sin. And what John is saying, even that besetting sin reminds you that you've been liberated from the bondage of sin. Because once upon a time, you were in bondage to all sin, just like you feel you are to that besetting sin. You just didn't care about it then. You didn't fight it. In fact, for most people, we embraced it. You know, you had sin in your life before you were saved uh, that, quite frankly, you looked forward to and enjoyed and didn't worry about it. It didn't make you feel guilty. And now it makes you feel guilty and you're fighting it and you, you don't feel like you're winning. And John's letting you know just the fact that you're fighting sin shows that Satan's power, Satan's bondage over you has been broken. And so he calls them strong. He says they've overcome the evil one because once you were weak and helpless before sin, and now by the grace of God you're fighting against sin. And how are they strong? He tells us, verse 14, the word of God abides in them. Jesus says in Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God dwells in them richly, and by this the Holy Spirit is building them up and making them strong. And so John can look at these Christians, and he can see the power of sin broken in their lives, even if they can't. And when we're thinking about this reality, we think about all those areas where the power of sin doesn't look broken to us. And John is saying, you know, just because you've been freed, liberated uh, from the power of sin, it doesn't mean you're just going to coast on home to heaven from here on out. It means, basically, that we've now entered a war. And that's why all this warfare imagery comes up in 1 John. When you're saved, you're saved into a fight against sin. The Christian life isn't just about enjoying fellowship with God and being forgiven by God. It's also about fighting the enemy. The world, the flesh, and the devil, Satan and our sins. The Christian life begins a fight. There are not too many uh, evangelistic tracts that start that way. Come to Jesus, put up your dukes. Um, probably wouldn't mark it real well. The... Uh, but that's the very next thing John goes into, and he goes into it by giving us a command in verse 15. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So you have verse 15 and just the one word, command. And again, there's two words in that verse that are repeated three times. Rich loves this repetition stuff. And the words are, World and love. So what does John mean by world? What does it mean when we say someone is a worldly person? John's usage of world in this case, in these verses, means evil over and against God. The sum total life of uh, uh, human life, human culture, the ordered world, considered apart from, alienated from, hostile to God with Satan as its head. We see that a lot in 1 John, in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know Him. 
Then in 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John, uh, 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He uses this a lot. And for John, there's a sharp dichotomy between two sides, between light and darkness and between truth and falsehood and love and hate and love of the Father and love of the world. And one cannot profess to be a Christian if one habitually, continually, time after time, invests his or her time and effort and energy in the things of the world and the things that are hostile to Christ and the gospel. Second question is, what does he mean by love? He's referring here to a fondness and affection for an object, an appetite, a desire, something I take pleasure in, something I set my heart upon, what I'm emotionally, physically, spiritually invested in, where I get my comfort, hope, and security. We're not talking about things in and of themselves, but our attitude towards those things. In other words, what drives you from the deepest part of your heart? You know, those of you who are familiar with The Lord of the Rings, either the books or the movies, I know that dangerous little word when someone, anyone, is tempted by the temptation of the ring. That dangerous single word, precious. What do we find precious? What drives us in that direction? When we can face that question, when we can honestly answer that question, we'll begin to find out what really are the idols of our heart. Verse 16, the idols of of our heart. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. This isn't a comprehensive list, but John's given us three marks, three characteristics of an infatuation with the world that's hostile to God. And the first one, we'll spend most time on this because uh, they're actually fairly similar, uh, is the desires of the flesh. Which means if there was ever a meddling sermon, this is it. The desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the appetite of the flesh. Something we think of physically, bodily, or sensually sin. That's not the complete story. Because John would be giving in to those Gnostics who were saying the body's evil. And that's not what he's saying. The phrase is referring to any and every desire of man that's in rebellion against God for the things of the world, all that panders to my desires and to my appetites. I mean, this could be just as much about gluttony as it is about immorality. It's about whatever physical desire that leads you away from God. And God has given us such things as food and money and sex, and when used biblically, he says they're all good things. But when they're used unbiblically, when they're abused, when our desire for those things becomes so strong, they lead us away from God, they lead us to betray those closest to us in order to get that idol, in order to get that precious, and even to the point of betraying God in order to get it. And John is saying, you can't live like that and claim to love the Father. You know, one of the things I think uh, ministers particularly uh, have the idol of, struggle with, is the idol of getting everyone's approval. 
It's an easy trap to fall into. We stand up in front of everyone every Sunday. Most of us try to speak in a way that we move people, touching them below the surface at levels of attitudes and affections. And I think some of you have even heard me say, maybe, perhaps, that I love it when people cry during a sermon. One, because I know you're listening, you know, and it's better than watching you sleep. But mostly because I know that somehow I've connected with you below the surface. Now, I can do that because the Word of God is powerful and effective and the Holy Spirit is working conviction in your life. Or I can do that because I found a really good tear-jerking story that's just going to mess with your emotions. And while one is good and the other isn't, either way, I love it. And most of the time, you love it too. Because maybe it shows that you're not dead yet. I don't know. But, you know, after one of those sermons, there's a lot of embellishing positive comments given this way. And I love those too. And you can get caught up in that so easily. And I got a computer full of manipulating stories. <laughs> and I've seen guys do that so well and get caught up in the glory and pride and adulation and they seem to forget what they're doing up here in the first place. And when that happens, it's a matter of time until some sin drives them out of the ministry. We focus on the desires of the flesh, but John also mentions the desires of the eyes and pride and possession. It's the same sorts of things. Greed, envy, and jealousy that comes from the desire of the eyes. Seeing something and saying, I want that. That can destroy us just as quickly. Pleasure, ego, wealth, conceit, boasting, security that comes from pride and possessions can be one of the fastest ways to turn away uh, from God. And they're all just different ways to exalt self. And truth be told, every one of us here is pretty good at doing just that. And so John finishes by telling us why he has such harsh, harsh words about the idols of our hearts. He is giving us a very simple, very clear rationale. Verse 17, what's his rationale? The world is passing away along with its desires, and whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, many years ago, uh, approximately 200 years ago, there was an early 19th century Scottish theologian and pastor whose name was Thomas Chalmers. He preached one of the most famous sermons of all time, and he preached it on this passage. He called it the expulsive power of a new affection. And he knew what he was talking about when he preached on the expulsive power of a new affection. Chalmers had lived a long time as an unbeliever. Indeed, he'd been a minister a long time as an unbeliever. And while a minister in those unbelieving years, he cared more about astronomy and mathematics, both of which he was an expert at, than he cared about the Bible, which he hardly ever read. His sermons were lectures in morality, doing good, rather than the proclamation of Christ and the gospel. They were, that is, until the Lord visited him with a severe illness. And the prospect of death and eternity was brought home uh, to his mind and heart. The gospel born in on his soul. And when he finally recovered, many months, he returned to his pulpit a new man. 
preaching with a passion he'd never had before and preaching Christ and him crucified. And as one of his parishioners wrote, suddenly the world to come cast an awful shadow over every sermon. It's because he knew that this world was passing away. If you think about it, we get a dramatic picture of that almost every year. Whether it's Hurricane Katrina or flooding in the Midwest, or an earthquake in China, or a tsunami in South Asia. We've all seen pictures of what it looks like when the world is passing away. And there's not much left, things or people. You know, there, I'm sure there were many folks uh, three years ago who lived along the Gulf Coast, and I'm sure they loved their homes right near the water. But when the time came three years ago, it was not difficult for them to walk away and leave their homes behind, especially when it became clear that Hurricane Katrina would arrive with waves and winds which would leave their homes nothing but empty slabs of buckled concrete scattered with sand and debris. That's the way it ought to be for us. Our citizenship is in heaven by faith in Christ. And we who know by the sure word of God that the world and its desires are passing away. But to be honest, all that's easier said than done. It's much harder to turn our hearts away from embellished positives and shrinking negatives and lies which are way too easy to believe. We forget the transcendence for which we were made and we settle for less as if it were more. A father will forget that he's been welcomed to the transcendent glory of being part of God's work of forming human souls. Instead, he'll buy into the pseudo-glory of career success. And more and more, his life will be eaten up and defined by his work. A mother will forget she's been called to create a community where souls are nurtured and cared for, and her children will cease to be a joy to her, instead become another obligation and an already too busy schedule. And young men and women forget the transcendent glory of having an identity rooted in the grace and mercy of the Redeemer. And instead, they'll live for the pseudo-glory of the approval of their peers. Much like pastors. They'll pick up their friends' vocabulary. They'll take on their sense of style. And they'll do things that prick their conscience and their never-dying pursuit to belong. And the things she hopes to find in the acceptance of her peers are things no human being is able to give her. When we fall into the pattern of accepting less as if it were more, we find the consequences become profound. Being right replaces being kind. Being served replaces serving. Power trumps character Possessions are more attractive than blessings and independence more compelling than community. Even getting the last cookie becomes more important than loving the other person. And the Apostle John is screaming at us, that's the world. And the world and its desires are passing away. Those are just idols. They have no life in them. 1 John 4, 4, uh, 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
He wants you to understand that Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the one who gives life. Jesus is the one who is really more. So please don't settle for less. Repent of your idols. Turn to, turn to Christ and live. And you'll find the transcendence you seek. Because it's all of grace from beginning to end. And it's all of grace because it's all of Christ. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.